taking Valley Line completion off our photo radar. This week, the LRT is delayed again, if you accept the premise that Transed's announcements about timelines have any meaning whatsoever. Plus, Edmonton chose 40 kilometers per hour as a safer speed for roadways, and now the province has made it illegal to enforce those speeds. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 158. In the past few weeks, we've been introducing you to the members of your city council. We've done nine of 12 city councillors, plus our interview with Mayor Sohi. There won't be any councillor introductions at the end of this episode. We've connected with all of these councillors, but actually getting a recording done has been proving slightly more difficult than we anticipated. We're still hopeful we'll get the final three to you, and I hope for their sake they'd come on the show as well. Is that a threat, Mac? <laughs> <laughs> no threat. We're, we'll, we'll be nice. Don't worry. We're not nice in the rapid fire segment. 34% of Edmonton residents surveyed responded that they would like to see an increase in their taxes to fund city services in the upcoming budget. Completing the sacred ritual and allowing Amarjeet Sohi to assume his true form at full power level. However, the mayor is retaining his collaborative, amicable outlook, saying we're going to kamehameha have a productive budget discussion. The first case of the Omicron variant has been confirmed in Alberta, putting government officials on high alert. Said Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, quote, We have to be very vigilant. Lord knows we love our trucks in this province, but I've been informed that any truck has the possibility of being a Decepticon variant. The city of Edmonton is hoping to avoid winter waste issues with the new cart system by releasing a set of guidelines to help people better manage organics in the winter months. Among the guidelines are pre-freezing organics, straining liquids like soups, and lining the bin with a compostable material that doesn't have much value, like Lauren Gunter articles. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode is brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta. Offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. Winter is coming and energy usage for all Albertans will be increasing, so now is a great time for listeners to look at their utility bills and ensure they are on the best plan. Albertans have a choice who they pay their utility bills to. Park Power is happy to provide free, no-obligations comparisons. If you decide to switch providers, it's easy, and you can feel good knowing you're supporting a local business and helping to give back to our communities with your utilities bills. Learn more at parkpower.ca. This month is a very special celebration. It's the one-year anniversary of when the Valley Line LRT was supposed to open from Millwoods to downtown. And lo and behold, we got some news this week that it's not going to do that. And it's not even going to do that in the first quarter next year. (laughs) Yes, the previous delay was that the southeast leg of the Valley Line LRT, which has been under construction for quite some time now, would be delayed until sometime in the first quarter. My money was on April Uh, We did not even get a chance to make it into 2022. And now TransEd has said not only will it not meet the December 2021 deadline, but it won't even meet that updated deadline. And now we're not going to see the trains running until sometime in the summer of 2022. This is not very surprising to either of us. No. Though I do find myself slightly surprised that they preempted their next deadline by announcing a further extension. I think they're taking the hit of announcing that they're going to be delayed. So why not just wait 
until close to the end of the next deadline. What's the point of doing it early? Good question. I was wondering if this had anything to do with budget or any of the other things that are ongoing. Maybe they thought it's Christmas time. People are in a good mood. We might as well give them the bad news now. It'll soften the blow. There doesn't seem to be any logic to why they would have announced this now. They are being penalized for missing the deadlines already. So it doesn't really make a difference if they continue to miss their deadlines and announcing it doesn't change anything. Uh, It's a little bit confusing why they chose to announce that now. The other thing that was confusing about it to me is that you did some math on this and they were kind of accurate in their previous delay if they said that it was going to be quarter one. Now to say summer means they've gone really off the rails. I did some back of the napkin math, uh, recognizing that these numbers don't mean anything. But Valley Line, as of recording on Thursday, has been under construction for 2,050 days. That means if we take their 96% completion metric and we just divide by those 2,050 days and assume a linear progression along the way, then that's about one half of a tenth of a percent per day, Um, which means that if we were accomplishing that every day, we'd be on track to complete it 85 days from now or February 25th. Now, of course, that doesn't account for COVID delays, slowing down progress, or this big chunk of concrete that they found. All of that should have actually increased their per day percentage. My thesis statement here is that none of these numbers matter or mean anything. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's not linear, of course. Uh, 96% might as well have been pulled out of thin air. Like, what does that even mean? When you were talking about this earlier, it made me think of every progress bar that you ever saw in like Windows 98, you know, it would get like really close to 100 and then just sit there for 10 minutes or maybe even right on 100%. That's what it feels like with this project. I mean, 96% is effectively done and yet they're not going to open it all the way until the summer. It's really strange. If you're comfortable enough saying you're 96% done, that means you know what the last 4% are. Why didn't they say what was still outstanding to be done? I do not have any confidence in these numbers, and I do not have any confidence that uh, Valley Line will open on time. I think back to the Metro Line, which was completed five years before it was operational. Yeah, they've already been testing, right? They've already had cars on the southeast leg. I walk by the 102nd Avenue part of the train every day, and there's been no activity there for weeks now. So, I mean, the construction that is happening, if there's still construction happening, has to be maybe with the signaling or the catenary wires or somewhere else along the line. It's not very obvious. Uh, I know you're right. It would have been a lot more helpful if they had said, this is why, right? This is why, you know, we know how much everybody wants this, but we have to do these two things and it's just going to take a bit longer. But they didn't even do that. The city said that replacement bus service will continue until the service starts. And uh, this will have budget implications, which we're going to be talking about a lot more next week with the city saying that they'll save about $7.1 million because of the delayed opening. Maybe, and I'm optimistic here, the delays on this LRT are to install really, really great public art on it. That that would be exciting. They're going to give a full 1% of the $2 billion budget to public art, right, Mac? Well, if history is any guide, I don't think that'll be the case. Uh, they have been talking about the uh, public art that they're going to have along the southeast leg. There's 11 stops in one station, and they've got artwork commissioned for all of that. The entire Valley Line project Budget for art is $2.6 million. I'm not very good at math, but 2.6 times 
100 doesn't equal $2 billion. (laughs) No, not even close. Here we are again, wondering where our 1% for art has gone. The art looks great, don't get me wrong, but nowhere close to the 1%. We've got the perfect medium in the form of a podcast to talk about the look of public art. So give us give us a little hint. What is some of the art on this line going to look like? Well, one of the things I'm really excited to see is there are uh, 400 paintings on the ceiling of the Tawatina Pedestrian Bridge. So this is the one that goes over the river, replacing uh, the old uh, Cloverdale Footbridge. And these were done by Métis artist David Garneau, who used to be from Edmonton. He now lives in Regina. But I think that is going to be pretty interesting to see. I've been annoyed by the Tawatina Bridge ever since the very first design was shared because I don't like the fact that the pedestrians are stuck underneath in the dark while the train goes over the top and you know has the beautiful views of the of the river valley but if we've got some beautiful art there along the way as you're walking maybe that will make that walk across the river not quite so dreadful looking (laughs) or cycle across the river because that bridge has been a nightmare because that pivotal connection has been closed for Seems like forever at this point. Seems like forever, for sure. Yeah. And then another one that they've talked about, which looks really interesting, is this massive ceramic colored glass. It's called Fluid Landscape. And this is at the Davies LRT station. And this one was the only one that was commissioned by an out-of-Canada artist, correct? That's right. This is an international artist, uh, Shan Shan Sheng, who is commissioned to do this. It's the only one that went to an international artist. Uh, It looks really cool. They've got a picture of of what Davies is going to look like. This is, again... A little bit of a strange design thing for me. Like this was sold as a low floor LRT line, was it not? (laughs) And yet the Davies station is high in the air, like really, really high. And I'm sure there are good reasons for why that had to happen, like, you know, cars or whatever, but doesn't really match with the, uh, the, the original pitch. I feel like I was sold, but this fluid landscape does look pretty cool. Well, Davies station is so funny to me because, you know, When you raise an LRT station, as happens in China and Japan, it's because, you know, there's a lot of construction on the ground. You need to raise the LRT because you can't demolish what was beneath. It's not like a Western cycle. But with Davies, it's a raised LRT station over a parking lot. It's just parking. And of course, the reason they had to raise the station was because it went over 75th Street and then went over 63rd Ave. And those are so close together, you couldn't just... It would be like a roller coaster if you went up and down. Uh, So it made sense to keep it in the air, given that we needed, needed in air quotes, to go over those road intersections. But yeah, Davies is a very funny looking station. Pretty when you drive past it, but Peculiar, given the design choices. And not going to be very uh, great to use as a transit user. I mean, I think about Southgate LRT station and the decision that continues to baffle me why it's not connected into the mall. And so you end up having to go down and up and down and up. It's just ridiculous. It's not a very good experience. What I will say about Davies is one of the complaints with the Capitol line and its extension to Century Park is that there's no park and ride in the city. You have to go to one of the eds of the city to park and ride. Davies mm-hmm. is going to function as a park and ride because they've got this massive parking lot. Yep. So, you know, maybe that'll appease some commuters. If it ever opens. Speaking of appeasement, the city does not the city does not seem to want to appease Heritage Days in its request to keep Horlack Park open. Uh, Horlack Park, uh, we had heard over the past couple of years, is in need of rehabilitation. And city council had been discussing options, whether it's going to be a 10-year process of 
perpetual construction delays or if they wanted to just rip the Band-Aid off. And Council appears to be choosing the Band-Aid solution, but that might include a three-year closure of Horlack Park. And this is a full closure. This is not a phased closure. So they're proposing to completely close the park. Nobody can use it, not just not Heritage Days, but none of us can use Horlack Park while that construction is going on. And the city, in a statement, basically said that given the scope of the work, there is not a phased scenario to allow them to continue to have these festivals operate at their normal scale and capacity, which is really strange to me. This is a massive, massive park. Like, there's got to be a way to phase in this construction and do a little piece over here and have the festival there. And I don't know, it seems like it should be obvious to, to figure out a way to, to keep that park open. Councillor Jans, Michael Jans, was talking about the news this week, and he described it as the jewel of the River Valley and as Edmonton's Central Park. And he said, quote, could you imagine going to New York City and being told Central Park is closed for three years? End quote. Which is a good question, I think. If you go back to episode 22 of this podcast. That was when we had then not counselor school trustee Michael Jans on talking about the Mayfair golf course, which is larger than Horlack Park directly beside it. And we recently renewed the release to 2069, I believe. The Mayfair could have been a great replacement for Horlack Park in this ensuing construction. Uh, But alas, well, maybe it will be. Maybe that's still an option on the table. Is there any way that that could happen? Nope. (laughs) So, I mean, I doubt it. The previous council has bound our hands pretty good with the lease lease, for the next several decades. I assume there's a potential to break the lease, but I imagine such breakage would be expensive, even though the lease was basically free. We only charged the Mayfair, I think, 800 some thousand dollars for a 40-year lease. I'm not a lawyer, though. Maybe. How rich would it be if they sublet it back to the city (laughs) (laughs) for those festivals? I suspect, uh, given the clientele of the Mayfair Golf Course, they do not want the uh, plebs stomping around (laughs) with their shoes on their pristine greens. No, probably not. Our new city council has been asked to approve nearly $7 million for design work on this Horlack Park renovation project. The total construction is estimated to be about $70 million, and that'll be part of the next capital budget, next four-year capital budget. One other thing I want to say about Horlack Park is the actual nature of this construction. Most of the construction on Horlack Park is going to be relatively invisible. I I believe the city said at least half of the work was underground utilities work and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But of course, there's going to be some public facing improvements like dredging the lake, which will improve water quality. It's funny because the triathlon that takes place in Horlack Park nearly every year, they have to clean all the goose poop out of the water before it's available for the triathletes to swim in. So that will be an improvement. But one of the things that the city mentioned uh, was improving lighting for security. And that makes me a little bit sad. I get it. You know, I'm not I'm not going to say you should be in a scary park and not be able to use it after dark in the winter because there's no lighting for security. But it's one of my favorite summer activities to go to Horlack Park in the pitch black, hang out with the skunks and coyotes on my bikes, really get spooked. And it's going to be sad that I can't do that anymore. It's a jewel in the city. Jans is right. All right, Troy, before we close on this, I had one other Horlock Park thing. Did you see in the news recently that they detonated chemicals in Horlock Park 
from the University of Alberta. So my understanding here is that the U of A has some chemicals that are used in, I don't know, bio research or something. And it's a usual practice that they would turn to the police service and fire rescue services to help them properly dispose of these chemicals. Like you with me so far? This kind of makes yeah. sense, right? Yeah. Uh, so then I'm thinking, yeah, sensible. I'm sure they'll drive it out to some industrial area or something like that. No, they went to Horlack Park at seven in the morning and detonated these chemicals. And then the police described it as a routine operation. And I mean, is that routine sounding to you? The things that aren't routine about this is the notification that they were exploding things at 7.30 a.m. came at like 11.30 p.m. the night before. No yeah. one reasonably saw that tweet. Right. But it was interesting because I'm not sure precisely what chemical uh, was being detonated. I think it might have been hydrogen peroxide adjacent, but it was just an expired chemical. And it's interesting because the way of disposing of it is if you basically explode it, you get water and oxygen, stuff that's not harmful at all. But if you were to put this in a landfill, if you were to put this in the drains, it would actually be quite toxic. So I thought it was a pretty cool science moment to hear about this. I do think it's weird to go down into Horlack Park and do it. If Horlack Park is fine, why not just do it in quad? Yeah, exactly. You could do it at the U of A. So you are right. It said it was diisopropyl ether and 1,4-dioxane, which are peroxide-forming solvents. And they say that peroxides are chemical compounds that are explosive. Yes. Can't go down the drain. <laughs> do not tune into Speaking Municipally for your Bill Nye Science Hour. This is not our forte, as was evidenced by the past <laughs> segment. Specific chemistry may not be our forte, but we also learned this week that uh, tweeting about photo radar probably isn't Rachel Notley's forte. Uh, so I was not on Twitter. I did not see this tweet, but I understand it caused quite a stir. So what did, I assume it's related to the province uh, announcing new changes to what municipalities can do with photo radar. And the main things they did here were extend their freeze on new photo radar until December 1st, 2022. So another whole year. And they also made another change, which we'll get to in a second. But what did Rachel Notley tweet about? After the UCP made a change that restricted photo radar, but also somewhat reaffirmed that photo radar won't be banned outright, mm -hmm. uh, Rachel Notley tweeted in all caps, UCP continue to hammer household budgets with photo radar. Jason Kenney's UCP government will continue to hit Alberta drivers with costly photo radar tickets, despite a lack of evidence that they contribute to traffic safety. And this is just a really weird self-own, not only because there's a preponderance of evidence that photo radar contributes to traffic safety, to the point where even Don Iveson, who has been absent from Twitter since he retired from politics, went ahead and jumped right in and quote tweeted Rachel Notley and said, I know nobody likes to get a ticket for driving too fast, but let's not aim to beat populism with populism, please. Which for Don is strong words on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, clearly they, it does have an impact on traffic safety. It's also uh, interesting that she framed it as the province continuing to hit Alberta drivers with costly photo radar, radar tickets. Last time I checked, you could avoid getting one of these things by simply not speeding. Yeah, absolutely. And we were not going to beat the photo radar don't speed dead horse. But let's <laughs> talk a little bit about some of the changes because the UCP made some really weird changes to the photo radar program uh, this week. Like you said, you know, they put a freeze on any new photo radar sites, which also 
includes upgrading of photo radar equipment. So if your camera breaks, can't buy a new one, not allowed. Mm -hmm. But the main thing that really threw me for a loop was they prohibited photo radar enforcement on residential streets with a speed less than 50 kilometers an hour. With a couple of exceptions around construction zones and school zones and things. But for the most part, yes, they've basically said, if you've got speed limits that low, you can't use photo radar to enforce it. Even the cash cow arguers, they will say, we can't have this photo radar on the Henday. We want this photo radar in communities where it actually matters, where it actually protects people. Right. And yet the UCP have prohibited that implementation because both Edmonton and Calgary have a default speed limit of 40 kilometers an hour, which means those roads, unless you're in a playground zone, are not enforceable with photo radar. Is this just a way for the province to get a dig back at the two big cities or is there something else here, some other kind of rationale for why they would make this change? What I have to assume is that this is the UCP setting municipalities up for failure without intentionally being partisan and removing a program that has verifiable evidence of traffic safety. So what I mean by that is if the UCP just up and said, nah, photo radar completely banned, you would have traffic safety advocates and you would have academics saying, hold up, this doesn't make any sense. Here's some some data, including data that you commissioned yourself. However, if the UCP were to make changes like this, which says you're not allowed to have any new photo radar locations. So only the places where you're already enforcing, where you've already gotten complaints about, can you continue to enforce? And you're not allowed to enforce where people want you to be enforcing and in neighborhoods where it matters the most. You're only basically able to enforce on the Henday and these other roads that people often complain about. What they've done is they've set up a situation where municipalities must fail. There's no way for this program to be successful in the eyes of the population because all possible improvements, and indeed, any sort of new technologies like point-to-point cameras are prohibited by the province. Yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, the premier, when he was talking about this, talked about the idea of local voters in municipalities petitioning their councils to uh, get rid of photo radar in those communities, essentially saying, we're not going to tell them that they can't have photo radar. But we are going to kneecap this so that it's effectively useless in your cities, or at least it's only going to be something that people are going to complain about. The the folks who say they want it not on the Henday, but in the residential neighborhoods, you can't have that. So if it did go forward to a city council in a municipality to say people don't want photo radar anymore, they've made it much more enticing, I feel like, for voters to say, yeah, you know what? That's right. Let's get rid of photo radar here. One of the things that gets lost in this discussion is that Casey Madu, the Solicitor General, who has said things, you know, that defund the police is an absurd argument and has mocked BLM for uh, their demands. Casey Madu himself has been the most effective politician in Alberta history at removing funding from police forces. Uh, He's done it by uh, changing the funding formula for how... Uh, funds went to the province. Previously, the province only got a quarter of photo radar fine revenues. The province now gets 40% of photo radar fine revenues. He has changed the funding formula for how municipalities get police funding by reducing it. And now with this photo radar change, well, the photo radar program funds the EPS to the tune of $22 million every year. 
any cut to photo radar is ostensibly a cut to the Edmonton Police Service. And indeed, if we need to lean on police further to enforce in our neighborhoods because photo radar cannot, then that's officers who are now not solving double homicides and are instead giving out tickets to people driving around your school. Yeah, that's a great point. The transportation minister said that photo radar generated about $200 million in 2019-2020 for municipalities, but said these changes would have a, quote, minimal impact on budgets, although the province has no plans, of course, to offset any lost revenue with any kind of grants or anything like that. In Edmonton, out of about 560 locations, uh, we have 120 in residential neighborhoods with speed limits of 40 kilometers an hour. So that's a significant number of, uh, of spots um, that we can no longer enforce photo radar in. I will say, as the last point to this, um, the UCP has never been a consultative government, uh, despite their best arguments in public. And I joined the media availability when Jessica Lamar, the uh, head of traffic safety in the city of Edmonton, was announcing the new guidelines. And I asked her the question, did you get any heads up whatsoever that you'd be prohibited from using photo radar on residential streets? And the answer was a plain no. This was never surfaced as an idea. This was never floated as an option. And they found out about it when we found out about it. Beautiful. What did you make of Jessica Lamar's statement that the province confirming automated enforcement is an effective and important tool for street safety? It sounded like an overly positive comment from her in the news release. She said that about six or seven times uh, during the media availability. It was clearly a rehearsed line. I, I mean, sure, some reading of the province's announcement could mean that, uh, but it was clearly, very clearly spin. The province tried to ban photo radar without banning photo radar yep. this week. And we're only going to see it probably get more restrictive. We'll see next year when the freeze ends. Speaking of freeze, uh, a little bit of snow fell on a bike lane in Garneau. The brand new one that was constructed just outside the Sugar Bowl with a raised multi-directional bike lane. And Edmonton being Edmonton, people parked on it. <laughs> yes, this is the bike lane on 88th Avenue between 109 and 110th Street. And I'm sure if you've been online this week, you've seen the photo bumper to bumper full of parked cars. It does not in those photos, I must say, look like a bike lane. And it turns out that maybe those drivers didn't realize it was a bike lane because there was no signage indicating that you couldn't park there. And in fact, may have actually been signage to say you could park there. Is that right? This has been an issue for a while. And there's been plenty of communication, plenty of tweets, plenty of emails to the city about this with no material action. It became an issue this week when it started getting media attention and when that really stark image of bumper to bumper traffic came in. Mm -hmm. And after the bumper to bumper traffic was shown parked in the bike lane, that's when the city of Edmonton confirmed that we are going to be asking the contractor to take down the signs saying you're allowed to park here. This goes back to our discussion about when is a project finished? Because sure, you know, the city likes to say landscaping and finishing touches are done after a project is finished. Taking down the signs that say, please park here is a requirement to finishing a bike lane project. I don't care what you say. Yeah, 100%. Uh, while we're on the topic, traffic lights at 109th Street in Jasper, still hanging from wires, not hooked up to the actual posts. Projects never get done in this city. One of the projects that's nearing completion 
is the 102 Ave car lane, uh, just, just the one that runs between the bike lane and the new LRT, and that the city reports will say can take up to 17 to 18 minutes in peak hour to make a turn off of. Uh, generally a useless car lane. <laughs> Previously, the Twitter audience, with Chris Nelson being the spearheader, did some mock-up images of, hey, what if instead of making this car lane, we just didn't? It hasn't been a car lane for five years. Can we just not? Usually, these Twitter arguments say, yeah, can we just not do this? And the city says, nah, instead, we're going to do this. Maybe this is a new council thing. Maybe this is the city turning over a new leaf. Councillor Ann Stevenson put forward a notice of motion to pursue a car-free 102 Avenue. Yeah, she's expected to make this motion next week. Paths for People has been advocating for this lately. Uh, as you say, this is a useless road. All Councillor Stevenson has done here is ask for a report, essentially. She wants administration to study the proposal to make sure there are no genuine technical challenges. But uh, I think those images that were that were shared about what this could look like really help people visualize what could be done with the space other than leaving it for cars. Uh, I walk by there, as you know, Troy, all the time. This week, they turned on the traffic lights. So the signals are now uh, operating in phases, even though there's still construction all around it. And they started today, as we're recording this, to take down the fencing. So it does seem like they're getting ready to open this back up to cars. I want to be the first car to drive on that road, Mac. You'll be killing 18 minutes, apparently. <laughs> You know, Mac, I read this copy and I do not have a smooth transition. So here's an ad. This episode is brought to you by The Future Of. It's a podcast hosted by Todd Hirsch, ATP Financial's Vice President and Chief Economist. The Future Of podcast has launched its third season and it connects with industry leaders to uncover what's on the horizon for things that might mean the most to you. The Future of Podcast promises to give you insights to help navigate what is often an uncertain future. Explore how our economy and communities can not only brace for change, but embrace the opportunity it creates. Can you tell this was written by an MBA? Subscribe to The Future of on Apple's, in the Apple Store? <laughs> I just copied and pasted. <laughs> Definitely written by an MBA. Subscribe to The Future Of wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with ATB at atb.com slash thefutureof. That's all for this week. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.